Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Mark 11, 11. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went out into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God, for assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, Forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for this window into who you are this morning out of the Gospel of Mark here. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we're coming before the same Jesus right now. We just ask Jesus, just as you taught those followers of yours then, would you teach your followers now? You've given us your Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. So Holy Spirit, would you work here? Uh, We're not here to gather around the insights of man, the personality or preaching of man. We're here to hear from you, God. So Holy Spirit, come, use this time to speak to your people and minister to us. We give you the space to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Aisha. I appreciate it. All right, yeah, you may be seated. What an incredible passage. Um, Just a reminder, as we get into chapter 11 here, the passage we just read is the second section we've looked at here in chapter 11. We've begun a shift in the life of Jesus. Mark chapter 1 through 10 covers the last three years of Jesus' ministry and life on earth. Mark chapter 11 through 16 covers the last week in Jesus' earthly life. 
Uh, some have said, and we mentioned this last week, that the Gospel of Mark could be called a passion narrative with an extended introduction. Chapters 1 through 10 has really been an introduction to this final week in the life of Jesus. And that's where we entered last week, and we continue to get through it today. Um, according to the timeline, we are in this passage looking at Sunday night for Jesus, a good old Monday morning. Got to love Monday morning. It's coming. And then even Tuesday morning for Jesus. So that's where we are in this final week. We're going to get familiar with this week because we're going to be in it for two months. We're going to be in one week for two months, okay? Now, uh, each week we're looking at a different aspect, zeroing in on a different aspect of the way of Jesus. And for this morning's study, as we see this passage, here's what we're zeroing in on. This is what the passage gives us. The way Jesus instructed. The way Jesus instructed. There's a lot going on in the passage we just read. Jesus is mad at a fig tree. He curses the tree. Talk, he's talking to a tree. That's cool. And he curses it for not producing fruit. That's going on. Jesus talks about mountains and them being moved. This is not normal, everyday conversational stuff, okay? Mountains being upplanted and, and, and transplanted somewhere else, thrown into the sea. And you have Jesus, not so meek and mild, wrecking shop in the temple, okay? Just going in. So what, what an incredible passage. A lot happening, but if we see the context, what you really have here is what what's, we even see there in verse, um, what is it, verse 18, uh, it's Jesus teaching the people. Everyone's astonished at his teaching. You have Jesus ultimately in this passage. All that's going on is really context to some special instruction that Jesus is giving in Mark 11. So when Jesus is speaking, we really need to listen, right? Here's Jesus giving some special instruction that's worthy of our attention and learning. Jesus here in Mark 11, specifically, listen to this, is giving instruction from his own field of expertise. Okay, what's your field of expertise? Just think about it for a second. Come on, we all got it, all right? Whether it's cooking or your profession or Fortnite, whatever it may be, we have all have some kind of expertise. We have a specialty, right? We have something that like people are, are gonna call us for this thing. What do you do in this situation? I, so the first one that comes to my mind right now is Glenn Fuhrer, who I call every time I'm trying my best to feed my family with a brisket. I'm three in. I'm pretty much 0 for 3 at this point. I'm really good at making brisket beef jerky. <laughs> really good at that. You know, I'll call Glenn or I'll call Drew. Drew's kind of got the briskets down. Don't lie. Don't humble brag, okay? Um, yeah, so, so there, there's people that you think of. If it's not that, maybe it's something else. You, you go, you know, I think they're good in this area. Let me reach out to them. Well, Jesus also, he has, let's say, Jesus has many specialties, okay? Maybe like limitless specialties. Um, but there's one specific specialty that this chapter highlights about Jesus that the, really a lot of the other chapters in the Gospels do it well, and it's do as well. It's Jesus' specialty of prayer. If you want to learn how to pray, Jesus is your guy, Right? This is his field of expertise. Jesus came to both model and teach on meaningful prayer. Like prayer that's not just reli like religiously hollow, and it, but prayer that's meaningful, that's effective, that's heart level. Prayer that, that moves mountains, right? 
So Jesus is the, the, the prayer specialist, we could say. And his disciples knew this, didn't they? It's why in Luke chapter 11, this is Mark 11, but look at the screen at Luke 11. In Luke 11, it says, It came to pass as he was praying in a certain place when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Wow, we look on at how you pray. We just see it's your specialty. We want to pray like you do. Not only because it's your specialty. That's one of the reasons why they're asking him. Like you go to the person who specializes in the thing. But the disciples knew or they, they learned something about Jesus' life as it pertains to prayer. Do you know what I'm saying? Notice they didn't say, Lord Jesus, teach us to preach. Teach us to heal. Jesus, that whole thing where you catch a fish and there's money in the fish, teach us that one. Or, or walking on water, barefoot water skiing without a boat. No? Okay. Do that. Teach us that, Lord. Guide us in the way of signs and wonders. Teach us this. Te Notice that they, they say, Lord, teach us to, to pray. Like, they identified prayer as the source of everything else in Jesus' life, right? Like, if, if it seems like this is Jesus' thing. Like, when he's praying, everything else flows out of that place. They see prayer as the thing they need to ultimately learn. Not just doing activities for God, but communion and intimacy with God. They learn this from Jesus, and so they have, this is their prayer request, isn't it? Lord, teach us to pray. We want to learn from you. Now, out of this request comes the Lord's Prayer, but also all throughout the scriptures, you have a variety of different teaching that Jesus gives on prayer. I think the request of the disciples here to learn how to pray and just the full body of the New Testament filled with Jesus' instruction on prayer included here in Mark 11 points to the fact that God knows we need his help to pray. Anybody in here just like a master prayer, like you never struggle with prayer? Now, it's always scary when you ask that question because you're afraid it's like, is someone going to embarrass himself and be prideful? I don't, you know, but it's always scary. How many of you, let's, let's flip that around, okay? How many of you guys would say that prayer has or tends to be for you a struggle point? Anybody? Yeah. I mean, that acknowledgement is all throughout Scripture. I love Paul says in Romans 8 that some, like, we need the Holy Spirit even in prayer because we don't know how to pray as we ought. It's like we come before God, we're like, prayer, is that good? Does that work? Does that connect? How's the service, you know? And the Holy Spirit is our helper that God sends to us to express what we truly mean that we can't put to words. Gives us the Psalms. I love the Psalms. Pray those when we don't know what to say. But there's just an honest expression, a humble expression from the disciples here. Lord, I know I need prayer in my life. I know that prayer, relationship with you through prayer, is the, the founding source of everything good in my life. But I need you to help me do it because I'm not good on my own. I just can't do it on my own. Would you teach me to pray? I see it's so essential to you. Would you teach me to pray? Here's the, good, here's the good news. Can I tell you something? Jesus loves when we ask him this question. And he is so willing and ready to teach us. He, he wants us to grow in prayer. He wants you to. And he wants to help you. We've got to follow him. And this is a great passage that leads us along that path. Uh, in this section that we just read, that, that Aisha read over us, we see Jesus teaching us to pray by giving instruction 
from three areas of prayer. There's really uh, three aspects, you could say, of prayer that Jesus teaches on. So let's learn from him. What are the three aspects of prayer that Jesus wants to teach us? And this is, by the way, going to be kind of like, a, this is one Sunday sermon. There's a, we did four weeks one time on this we did a four-week series a couple years ago called Teach Us to Pray. You can find that on our podcast where we go in more in-depth into it. So let me just give you a little, you know, you're in the food court and you're going to Chick-fil-A and then that, the Asian food place comes out and they give you that little sample and you're like, that MSG is good, okay? And then you get the age, you're like, I'm going here. That's my goal today. Just a little sample that makes you hungry for more. Okay. A little sample. All right. There's three aspects of prayer that Jesus teaches on. Let's look at each of them. The first is the necessity of prayer. Jesus starts with emphasizing in a dramatic fashion the necessity of prayer. This is a house of prayer, he says, for all nations. Um, and I want to just emphasize this in the context. When I use the word prayer, based on your background, a variety of different things may come to mind. It's hard to simplify prayer down to one specific thing because prayer has many different forms and functions, right? Prayer, sometimes prayer is, God, help me, right? Lord, help. Sometimes that's prayer. There's a, there's a story in the Bible in the Old Testament with Nehemiah, and it just says that Nehemiah, he's like asking the king a question, King Xerxes, he's super scared, and says he prayed to the Lord, which I think was him just being like, oh, gosh, please, Lord. You ever been there? Sometimes that's prayer. So it's hard to kind of pinpoint prayer. We don't want to limit it. But if we could give as best of a summarized definition of what Jesus is emphasizing here as a necessity to our Christian lives, we'll say this. When I say the necessity of prayer, we're talking about communion with God via communication with God. First and foremost, the goal of prayer is not getting things from God. God isn't a cosmic vending machine that we put our prayer coins into to get what we want from him. He's a living being who's a father to his children. The goal of prayer, first and foremost, is communion with God. Being with him. But it's communion via communication, which is, which is really the, the hope of any strong connection between anybody. You know, maybe you think about friends in your life that you were really close to in a time past, but you're not as close today, and it's probably because you haven't spoken in a while. You know what I'm saying? And you ever had that happen where, like, you, you meet up with that friend, and, and you say, man, it was, we picked up right, like, right where we left off? And why is that? You probably had some good communication that rekindled the connection. Communication is, is foundational to any intimate and deep and meaningful connection. And this is what prayer is. Prayer is, is, is connecting with God. It's communion with God through talking to him communicating with him. It acknowledges his presence. It acknowledges his listening ear. Jesus says the foundation of this is he's your father in heaven. You come to him and you communicate with him. So that, that's what we mean. The necessity of this, like as we look at our lives, like is this going on? Jesus teaches on the necessity of communion with God via communication with him. And the context of this is remarkable. Let's, let's get to the teaching through the context. It tells us in Mark 11, 11, that Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. Last week, we studied the triumphal entry, Jesus' royal procession into Israel for his coronation as king. He comes in symbolizing that, that, that picture of peace. Jesus doesn't come in that moment. He doesn't come on a white horse. 
to make war. He comes on a donkey to humanity who sinned against him to make peace. And Jesus makes that royal procession. And, and as he goes into the heart of is, the city, which is the heart of Israel worship, Israel's worship, Jesus goes even further and he goes into the temple. So this is where Jesus goes. Just picture the scene. He rides into Jerusalem. There's a whole parade. There's confetti. There's celebration. And Jesus makes his way when he arrives at his destination. Like usually when I get to a destination, I don't know about you, if I fly somewhere or travel somewhere, the first thing I do when I land is I go local coffee shops. I need that cortado. It's 2 p.m. Let's go. All right? I look up some review. You know, it's always a gamble. It's always a gamble. For Jesus, he gets to Jerusalem. He goes straight into the temple. And I want you to notice this. This is really interesting. It says, so when he had looked around at all things, as he, he looks around at all things, just put your imagination in this moment. Jesus comes in, and he's just kind of pacing around observing the temple. The word there, looking around, has the idea of inspection and observation. He's taking a good look of what's going on there. Now, here's what's interesting. This is actually a prophetic moment. Malachi chapter 3 says to Israel that the messenger is coming and he's going to come straight into the temple and he's coming like a refiner's fire. He, and then he says this, he's coming like a launderer's soap. That good soap that makes things clean. Jesus here prophetically fulfilling what Malachi said. Jesus is coming to inspect the worship of his people. He's coming to, to, to look around at their spirituality. Now, lest we think this is an isolated event to the temple, here's what Proverbs 15.3 says, the eyes of the Lord are not just in the temple, but they're in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. This lends toward what the, toward what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord, where we're like, there's nothing in my life hidden from you. Like, I want us to know this at any time. Your spirituality, though it may be hidden towards others and disguised with religiosity, it's open to God. He sees our spirituality. Now, he's got a great heart towards you. That's the best news, isn't it? Because there are times where he looks on at us and he doesn't see good in our spiritual lives. He sees evil. But, but that's what's going on here. This is what the Lord does. He makes an inspection of the worship. He's looking around. And, and, and as he's doing that, he's doing it in the temple and here's the question we ask ourselves, what does he find? Well, you know the story, right? Jesus is going to go on to cleanse this thing. Um, the ministry of connection, the temple, the place where, in, in this context, he's likely in the, the court of the Gentiles, all nations he talks about. This is the place where all of humanity can come back to relationship with God. The temple was there to serve that purpose, like church. Like, this is a place where all people, whatever your background, whatever your, like, this is a place for you to connect with God. That was the temple. And that place that was to serve as a house of prayer and worship had become a house of corruption, greed, and exploitation. This is Passover. So everyone's coming to make their sacrifices. They're coming to worship God and connect with God, even the Gentiles. But but listen, to pay your temple tax, you've you got to make sure you have that good Jewish currency. None of that pagan stuff. So you've got to go to the money changers, and you've got to, ex you ever done that, by the way, travel to a foreign country? You've got to be careful which place you go to. You know what I'm saying? You don't go, ever go to the one at the airport. The one at the airport's always going to price gouge you pretty hard. But this is what's happening in the temple. You have, you have Jesus, uh, God's people in the temple, and as people are coming to connect and commune with God, they're exploiting their needs. 
and they're raising the prices to, to do some basic currency exchange. It's costing them an arm and a leg. Let's not even get into the sacrifices that they have to pur purchase. And most scholars would tell you, it's not even that people didn't bring their own sacrifices, but what, what would happen is people would come and they'd bring their, their, their lambs and, and the, the marketplace people would look on in the temple and they'd go, yeah, that's a good lamb, but I see a little blemish there on the foot. That's, the Lord's not going to accept that. Okay, what you need is one of these lambs. You know, and they like open up the curtain and it's like, if you buy now, you know. And just ex exploiting people. And if, if there's one thing that we could say that these people were, as Jesus is looking around the temple examining spirituality, here's what he finds in God's house. He finds God's people monetizing the ministry. Ministry is about laying down what I have for the good of others. This corruption in the, in, in the temple, and, and it's in the church, is an attempt to use ministry to gain from people. It's a selfish ambition, a selfish motive. I'm going to exploit people and say, if you sow your $10,000 seed, you will be healed, right? That's the modern expression of this. But it's wickedness at its very core. And, and I don't know if there's, there's lots of different forms of wickedness, but there's a, in Scripture, there's like a special weight on wickedness that involves taking something that's pure and holy and making it profane. Really wicked in the eyes of the Lord. Treating something sacred as common. Okay, monetizing something holy so, so there's just straight-up widespread corruption. This is what Jesus sees when he looks around the temple. Now, I want you to notice what he does. This is, this is, such, this is not even like part of the sermon, but I guess it is. Um, I, this is where I like sat and really had to think about this. Jesus looked around at all the things that he saw, looked at his watch. It was getting late. And he goes out to Bethany with the twelve. I don't know about you, but my tendency is I like to, in the name of the Lord, react to the wrong. Got to jump on the problem. There it is. Jump on it, all right? If I don't deal with it now, no one ever will. Okay. What a great life lesson from Jesus. Be angry, but do not sin. You're about to see angry Jesus with the righteous anger of God bringing holy judgment against wickedness. But notice that Jesus doesn't jump on it. He's like, I'm going to go sleep on it. I'm going to go pray on it. What a great lesson, right? Like next time you're called by God to inflict his righteous anger upon someone, what if you just like, I'm going to go to Bethany. I'm just going to, I don't want to react. I want to respond in unity with the spirit, right? In line with God. So just, a, just hear Jesus, the way Jesus reacts. That's another sermon, Okay. He goes out to Bethany with, his, with the 12. He spends the night there. Now, I want you to notice this. This is, this is about to get interesting, but it's all connected. The next day, so they wake up the next morning. They come out from Bethany. They go to sleep. He sees what's going on in the temple. He, instead of reacting, he goes. He prays. I imagine he's pretty angry at the injustice, like seeing what he does a day later. I imagine he was angry at that moment. And when he comes out from Bethany, he's making his way back into Jerusalem, and just the humanity of Jesus here on display, he's hungry. Okay, It's the morning. It's early. You know, the avocado toast place is closed. He's like, I, I, I need something to eat. I need something to eat. 
And so seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, those, those leaves are a sign of fruit. It's an external expression of fruitfulness. He went out, and do you see the same idea as what he did with the temple? He went to see, he's looking around to see if this fig tree would find, uh, if he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was, now, this is, this is where it gets weird. For it was not the season for figs. Okay, so Jesus goes, oh, it's not the season for figs. <laughs> Let's move on. No. He speaks to the tree. You ever talk to a tree? Jesus did. He, he talks to the tree. Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples, Elvis just says, they heard it. They're just like, did you hear that? Was he talking to you? No, he's talking to the tree. The fig tree? No. Why? It, he, went, he wanted to eat from it but it didn't have figs, even though it's the time of year where it shouldn't have figs. So what do he do? He cursed it. Cursed it? Okay. This seems unique, doesn't it? It's like, you know, even like here in South Florida, if you're, if you're eating organic, you know, there's certain fruits and there's certain seasons. You're not going to kick the door down at Publix if they don't have the fruit that they don't have when they shouldn't. Now, little uh, cultural background, little Jewish context I have for you. Um, it's true that this wasn't the time for fig leaves to be on the tree this, this springtime, but there was usually at this time of year, when you saw the, those, those leaves start to show, one of the best signs that this was going to be a fruitful tree is there would be these smaller, uh, edible, um, I hate the word for it. You know some words you just don't like to say, and I'm sorry that I have to say this to you, but it's the word nodule? I don't like that word. Anyway, there were these little fruity nodules on the tree that travelers, it's not seasoned, but they would go, okay, it's got, by the way, I've never been drawn to, like, I want to eat a nodule. Let me get some. You guys have any nodules? I've never been drawn to eat a nodule. But they, gra- they would grab the nodules, and travelers would get some sustenance, and this was like an early sign that fruit was going to come. So it's likely, and almost every commentator agrees, this is what Jesus is looking for. So that kind of gives a little bit more insight to what's going on. Now, when you understand the greater scope of scripture and, and metaphor, you see that this is so much more than Jesus being upset at a tree for not giving him the fruit he wanted to eat. All throughout scripture, the fig tree is a picture of Israel. The fig tree is a picture of Israel, God's people specifically. And it's a great parallel, isn't it? Just like the temple, Jesus comes to the tree to find something on it. He looks around at the heart of worship of his people, and he's looking for something substantial, and all that he finds is the appearance of holiness. The form of godliness. Church attendance. Come on, this is churches today. We're we're busy we're pumping out 20 services. We're active. We're, we got people doing things. Isn't that what God wants from his children? To just be busy unto death for him? That's the mindset. It's a metaphor for hollow religiosity. It's a metaphor for being busy but being distant. It's a metaphor for activity without intimacy. Intimacy. 
Jesus, like the temple, inspects this fig tree, and it's found, listen, it's found fruitless. It's become corrupted. It's not, simply speaking, it's not doing the job it was supposed to do. This fig tree had a job, bear fruit. The temple, the church, has a job, help people connect with God. As Jesus came to look on, he didn't find what he was looking for. So he curses. This is really interesting. He curses the tree. Let no one ever eat from you ever again. Like, sometimes this is the most gracious thing that God can do is shut down a ministry. It's like Jesus, as you, like, Lord, we pray that souls would bear fruit, right? Like, this is something, like, you, you read, and by the way, like, I don't want to turn the heat up too much, but you look at Revelation, and you see Jesus coming before the churches, and he's doing the same thing. He's inspecting. He's looking for fruit. And to some, he's like, hey, like, there's some issues, but repent and turn back. And, and, and the ultimate judgment is like, I, I don't want to have to, but I may remove your lampstand, right? You see that? It's like, because this thing is meant to bless people, not curse people. And the second something holy meant for blessing becomes a vessel of curse and brokenness, Jesus in his grace will show up and he'll flip some tables. That's the most gracious thing he can do. By the way, Unless we start thinking about all those other churches, he'll do this in our lives. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. So, so what will Jesus often do? So, so it tells us this. The next day they come to Jerusalem. Jesus goes into the temple. Look at this word. He began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Amazing. Um, you know, this isn't Jesus meek and mild as we saw him on the donkey riding into Jerusalem, is it? You know, this reminds me of the vision that John receives in the book of Revelation. His description of Jesus is, it's like as Jesus turns his face from one angle, he's the lion. And the other angle, he's the lamb, right? He's the lamb that's coming into Jerusalem with all the other lambs that are brought in. He's the Passover lamb that takes away the sin of the world. But he is the lion of the tribe of Judah who will not tolerate wickedness and is faithful and just, and he will judge. It's a time of peace and grace, but we see Jesus bringing just judgment here. This isn't weak and mamby-pamby Jesus like so much artwork and modern church thought projects Jesus to be. Jesus is a man's man. I mean, single, you know how many people he's driving out here? Hundreds. And there, there, there's this sense of like his eyes are like a refiner's fire, like revelation. And he's coming and just bringing this heaviness. Now, I want you to see the key word here that Mark uses, which is consistent with the narrative of scripture, is that Jesus begins to, I love this phrase, drive out. This is the, the, the phrase that's used all throughout the Bible to describe how God works against wickedness in our lives, in the church in the temple, and in the world. If you go all the way back to the very beginning with Adam and Eve, the Bible says that Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. This is a gracious thing that God does because holiness can't be holiness with sin involved, right? Wholeness can't be wholeness with brokenness. If there's wickedness, the most gracious thing that God does is he drives it out for the sake of everyone else. This is also the word that's often used in the Old Testament when God will send his prophets or his people or like an army of Israel to go just like wreak havoc on a village. You ever read that stuff? You're like, 
This is the Bible? Whoa! This, is, this certainly isn't Jesus meek and mild. This is like 300, the movie. It's like, this is gnarly. And oftentimes the word that's used of those um, conquests is, the, is the, the, the task that Jesus gives his people is drive out. Drive out. You got the promised land, the place where God's going to establish his temple and his holiness. And so you got to drive out the wickedness. You got to drive out Jericho. You got to drive out the Amalekites. It's a picture of God's saving, gracious work to remove anything broken from, from the system. It's what he'll do in our lives as well. It's his love, by the way, it's his love and grace over your life right now to drive out the sin that's holding you back. When he comes and inspects your and my life, and, and there's a form of religion, but a lack of substance. His grace and goodness will convict us of that sin to drive it from our lives. So our lives can be a personal blessing and also a corporate blessing to others. This is what he does. It's what he's doing in the temple. Notice the teaching. Jesus teaches them and says, is it not written? So now we, we have instructor Jesus. That's all context. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. He's quoting from Jeremiah here. But you have made it a den of thieves. So this is the indictment he has against those in the temple. This is, this is meant to serve as, a, as a, a, an opportunity in a house of connection. And you've come in and you've corrupted the thing. Jesus is speaking again to the necessity of prayer. This is what the house of God is for. And, and maybe some of these encouragements can touch on our own lives as well. Whatever busyness and activity there is in our lives, the question we have to ask ourselves is, is communion with God first and foremost and central in my life? Or have I, maybe I haven't, brought wickedness and corruption into the temple. But maybe I've deviated from the substantial relationship that God has given me with him. And, and as a result, I've kind of become a fig tree with leaves but no fruit. So Jesus calls us back to that communion. He also talks about this with his disciples. We'll zip through these last ones. The authority of prayer. So we see the necessity of prayer is the first thing. He, he's like, whatever this has become, it's missing my heart. We've got to come back to what I what I, what I came to rescue humanity for, which is a dynamic and authentic relationship with God, it happens through prayer. It's a necessity. Without prayer and communion with, God's, with God, we become like a fig tree with leaves without fruit. Um, the next thing he does is he teaches on the authority of prayer. The next day happens, and they're passing by, and the disciples... They see the same fig tree. I wonder if Jesus purposely walked them on this course to see this fig tree that he cursed. And he's, they see the fig tree dried up from the roots. Uh, why? Because Jesus cursed the fig tree. And Jesus says it's going to happen. It's going to happen. You can trust his word. It says this, And Peter, remembering, said to him, as if Jesus would be surprised, Rabbi, look, it worked, right? The fig tree you talked to and yelled at and cursed, it's withered away. So this, there's this sense of, uh, this is, Jesus will go on to kind of rebuke this spirit. This this expression of excitement in Peter is actually a sign of doubt in his life because he's surprised at God being God. Does that make sense? He's so excited. Whoa, God answered my prayer. It's like, why did you doubt, right? It's an expression of his surprise. It's like, well, that's what God does. So Jesus speaks to Peter and all of his disciples. He says, have faith in God, Peter. He's talking about the authority of prayer here. Notice what he says. For assuredly, I say to you, you need to understand who God is. God is able to answer prayers, big prayers. The kind of prayers where someone like 
talks to a tree and it withers up. Crazy stuff. Super, the kind of prayers like in the Old Testament, there's, um, there's this battle that's happening in Israel. They're, 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 they want to gain victory, but the sun's going down. So they pray, God, can you just like keep the sun there? We just need the sun to stand still. We just need a little bit more daylight. Okay, need some daylight savings time. Lord, can you hook us up? And the sun just parks there. This like anomaly, right? Big, like the belief, not just like, Lord, give me a parking spot. You, you are Jehovah Jireh. You are the God that makes a way. You, Lord, green lights in Jesus' name. We just, good. But how big is your God, right? That's what, that's what Jesus is getting at with Peter. He's like, have faith in God. He says, whoever says to this mountain, he could be pointing at the Mount of Olives, who knows? Be removed and be cast into the sea. Jesus uses like a crazy, like uh, almost extravagant example of this to make a, a powerful point. He says, whoever speaks to this mountain, just like I spoke to the fig tree, and you don't doubt in your heart that God is who he is, and actually hears the, that prayer isn't frivolous activity, that prayer is productive and effective, and that prayer, some people have even said, moves the hand of God. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, is what James says. Prayer changes things. We don't just pray because God told us to. We pray because God invites us to watch him work supernaturally. So he's like, you have to have that faith in your heart, not doubt, but believe that those things he says will be done. He will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, totally non-problematic verse here, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you'll receive them and you will have them. Let's close in prayer. No, that's difficult. We got to talk about this. Okay. Now, we, we need to understand what Jesus is not saying. The context of this passage is this is the point of what Jesus is saying. Have faith in God. Not faith in yourself. Don't have faith in your faith. Have faith in God. It's, talk, it's a matter of authority. You know, uh, used and abused this verse, you know? Okay? You know, it's why you don't have the job. You don't have enough faith. If you had faith, then God would bless you. You're not, you're not, you haven't gotten to blessing yet because you don't have enough faith. Or it's why you haven't been healed of cancer. Now, let's zoom out for a second, okay? This, this verse has been used to abuse people. It's also been misused, and it's kind of like this clearly, if you isolate, by the way, if you isolate a scripture from the Bible, you can make it say whatever, it want, whatever you want. This is what Satan does with Jesus when he tempts him to jump off the temple. He uses a Bible verse. And Jesus is like, you got to read the whole thing, Satan, okay? You gotta get hooked on phonics, buddy. All right. James says that sometimes you ask in faith, but you don't receive because you're asking according to your own will and you're asking amiss that you might spend it on your pleasures. Self centered prayer. This is not faith in God's faith in yourself. Uh, here's what 1 John 5 says This is the confidence that we have in Him. John expounds on this. He was there, he heard Jesus teach this. He's like, I need to help this, these Christians out. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, how many of us know exactly the will of God for my situation and what he's going to do? And if you start to think you do, you're living in fantasy land. His, listen, there's a mystery. We trust in God's heart. We trust that he's able. But it's up to him. My job is not what God decides to do. My job is I don't want to doubt and I want to trust that you can I want to come to you with faith in you. The real issue here in Mark is an issue of authority. That's what Jesus is getting at. 
Who's the biggest authority in your life? Whoever has the most authority, it means this, they control the most in your life. So oftentimes what we do is we give our circumstances the authority. The circumstances control our faith. The circumstances determine what kind of prayers we pray. Other times, here's what we, I've seen this a lot. We give our past experience authority. I've prayed for that already. I, God didn't answer that prayer. In fact, there's deep disappointment. Or, or yeah, I've prayed for that, but God will only do this much. This is what God, like kind of, yeah, God's big and stuff, but he only does this much. So we like lower God down to the bar of our experience. And Jesus, he, you know, he's teaching one thing. Have faith in God. Let me ask you this question. What's your uh, immovable mountain? What's the mountain that's in front of you? It's the dynamics of your home? Is it a workplace problem? Have you ever been your own mountain? You ever been your own mountain in your life? You ever been your own obstacle? Maybe it's a chosen sin. Have faith in God. The authority above everything. The, the idea is I, I, I hold everything in my life up to who God is, which is bigger and greater and stronger than anything else. So I have faith in him. That's the root of prayer. And I can come to him with faith in this God. I say, yeah, God, this thing is big. It's looming large in my life. But I bring my immovable mountain to the one that moves mountains, to the one that hears, the one who answers, the one who responds. Invite the band to come up and close us, and we'll get to the heart here as we wrap up with the priority of prayer, this last point. Begin, beginning our descent here, okay? I see the, the, the tarmac or runway, the, the airport, it's right there, okay? The priority of prayer. Jesus talks about the authority of, of God over the impossible things we face, to trust him, to pray with big faith. And then I love that he says this, and whenever you stand praying, so here you are, you're sitting, but say you were standing and you're praying. If you have, notice this, he gets right into the heart of who you are. He says, if in your prayers of faith, inside of you, you have something against someone. You have it. You see that? You have anything. It's like in you. You have it. It has you. It's in your heart. He says, as you're coming before God to pray big prayers of faith, look in your heart and forgive them that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. Look at this almost condition of forgiveness. If you don't forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Um, Jesus is speaking to all who have ears to listen, even at that time. He says, if anyone. He's talking about anybody that's listening. And, and maybe this was kind of popular in the culture. I think it is today, too, where it's really easy to treat prayer as this exterior activity. And to miss the priority of prayer is not just getting what I want from God. The priority of prayer is my heart before him. The priority of prayer is not getting what I want from God, but the priority of prayer is getting my heart right with him. Can I say that's the, that's the entrance to prayer? If you haven't prayed in a long time, Jesus invites you to pray and to just come and say, God, I'm just bringing my heart to you. I want to get right with you. And he welcomes you and he helps you. He goes, come get your heart right with me. It's the work of my spirit. I've given you access to get your heart right with me. The thing he calls out here is bitterness. If there's, by the way, if there's anything that'll jack your heart up, it's 
It's holding grudges. Somebody wronged you and you've just been wearing it. And you pray like it's not there. And the Lord's like, no, no, don't pray like that. Pray to the God of forgiveness. Don't, don't pray like you don't have a God of forgiveness. Here, here's what Paul says when he expounds on this. He says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another. Lord, would you soften our hearts, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Do you know that today as you sit here as a follower of Jesus, God in Christ has forgiven you. You've sinned. But Jesus died. He's a savior who covers over the sins of his people. He atones for our sins fully. He says it's finished. You're forgiven through the shedding of blood. You're forever forgiven. Forgiven. The priest says, Jesus has sat down at the right hand of God. He's like, it's done. You stand forgiven. You don't have to walk and run to be forgiven. You stand here right now forgiven. You are forgiven through Jesus. As God in Christ has forgiven you, So, Lord, may I forgive others as you have forgiven me. Lord, we just come to you and we say, God, make our hearts right with you. Whatever we've made our Christian life, whatever we've made our spirituality, we know that you come and as you look on at our lives with eyes like fire to refine us, you look at our hearts and those same eyes that are gentle and lowly call us to come to you to repent of our sin, to repent of our hollow religiosity and to come back to you, to get our hearts right with you. God, to live from communion with you. So God, that's our prayer. That's our desire. We want to be those that know you intimately. God, help us, keep us from wasting time with spiritual busyness. And God forbid corruption. When you find our lives, may you find us fruitful as we abide in you, Jesus. We thank you for the cross that gives us access to you right now that says we are sons and daughters with a heavenly father. And Father, we come to you. We say, make us more like you. Keep us in intimacy with you. God, um, we pray that you would flip over the tables of our schedules that have boxed you out. And draw us to meet with you early in the morning or wherever we find that time. We love you, Jesus. We thank you that even though we don't always know how to pray, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, would you make us a praying people? Soulless church, God. There's so many things we may want to do, but man, this is like the one thing. May our legacy even be that as a community, we were those that sought to pray, to know you in intimacy and truth. We thank you for the work you're doing here in our church. We love you. We praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.